And if I could have somebody uh, be willing to stand and read Micah 5 and verse number 2 as we get started. Who would be willing to stand and read Micah 5 and verse number 2 for us? Nat, okay. Thank you. So we are looking at another Messianic prophecy that has a little bit more of a geographic um, flavor or context to it. And so my love for maps and geography shows up at these times, and so I hope I don't overdo it a little bit. But uh, this is a map, of course, of Israel, and this would be back in Bible times. And I'll step over to the side, and I don't know if my special effects will work there a little bit. Uh, down here would be Bethlehem, in what is now considered the West Bank, but we know this uh, as the land of Judea, Samaria, the land of Israel, specifically in the southern kingdom, in the land of Judah or Judea. And then, see if this will work. Yes, there we go. So we know that Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But this is the area, and this distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have been about 80 miles. So a little bit further from here to probably a little bit south of Indianapolis to give us a little bit of a frame of reference. So Indianapolis would be about 55 miles, 60 miles, so another 20 miles south, probably getting into, I don't know, maybe Greenwood, Franklin, somewhere around there, if we took 65 south. So that would be the distance by foot, uh, donkey, <laughs> camel. Uh, this isn't by Amtrak or a nice carbon-emitting emis carbon <laughs> fossil fuel <laughs> Uh, vehicle, I say that with all tongue in cheek, of course. Okay, go ahead, spew your carbon all the way down to to, to uh, Indianapolis. Sorry, I'm getting a little carried away now. But anyway, no no electric vehicles, no Amtrak. Uh, Purdue's getting ready. I think in the spring, getting ready to start flights again to Chicago. First time in like 20 years or something, and we're kind of excited about that because we're right in the flight path of all those little planes, and Josiah's got an app on his phone. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate that. So every time a plane flies over our house, Josiah's scrambling for his phone, and he's like, Dad, it's 20,000 feet, and it's going from here to here. It's really cool. But uh, that's, gonna, that's probably going to put us really in the, the, I don't know, I guess it's more of the landing, uh, but the flight plan probably going to come over our house, which is, which is fun. We were in, on the west side of Indianapolis, we were right in the range of where the planes would fly. If, they, if the winds shifted, the, the big passenger planes and the FedEx planes, they would fly literally over our house, um, and we would hear them on a regular basis. Now, the other ones would come across um, uh, 465 on the west side, but here we get the little corporate jets and the little Cessnas and the Piper planes, and those are, those are fun to watch, too. Um, 
but I digress. Anyway, so this is a little bit of an idea of what the shepherds uh, may have uh, experienced as they were out in the fields. And, of course, they would have their places where they would call the sheep. And then this is, from my understanding, this is, I've not been to the Holy Land, but my understanding is this is the traditional place that's recognized as Jesus' birthplace in Bethlehem. Now, how accurate could they possibly be? Um, I did not dive deep into how they figured out this particular place, but that's what the tradition, and of course, there is built what? Some sort of cathedral or, or memorial or something, right? And I don't know who all owns what as far as this, but I'm assuming the Catholic Church is involved in some way uh, with that. Has anybody, has anybody been to this location, Earl? You've been there? Uh huh. Okay, so this would be the cathedral entrance down here. Obviously, that's just a guess, an estimate. Yeah, a lot of that stuff over there is... Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank you for that. So that gives us a little bit of a frame of reference. So, when we read in Micah 5 and verse 2, we read Bethlehem Ephrata. So this is distinct from another Bethlehem that is in the northern region in Galilee. And Ephrata would be the tribal or the ancestral, the historical name for Bethlehem. We know Bethlehem today. It's famous for being the birthplace of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But as Micah 5 and verse 2 reads, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Bethlehem was not a particularly famous well-recognized place, um, even in Bible times. It's not listed in Joshua 15 in the list of many of the cities and villages and towns. It's not listed in Nehemiah 11 after the uh, return from exile. It's not listed there either. So among the thousands of Judah, there's an understanding of Families and clans, obviously towns and villages, but among the land of Judea, there in the southern part of Israel, there would have been thousands of villages, towns, family units. So some have even uh, believed that the thousands refers to of the various families. So now we go back to whom? We go back to David. So let's continue here and give us a little bit of background. Micah is prophesying in chapter 5. This is the minor prophet Micah, his book here. The context is the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Hezekiah being a good king. 
There's a reference to King Zedekiah in verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. There's a prophecy by Micah of judgment coming, particularly on King Zedekiah and the coming Babylonian captivity. So in verse 2, there's the reference to the first coming of Christ. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see a reference to the second coming of Christ. Therefore, he will give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. We've already seen a partial return. Israel proper today, 1948, and the nation, there will be a greater return. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And then that is prophesying into the millennial kingdom and into the eternal kingdom, which in verse 2 is even referred to from everlasting, the end of verse 2. So we'll talk about this a little bit more. We know that this prophecy was understood even by the Jews, the chief priests and the scribes, who brought this up when the wise men came, talked about a king being born, the wise men of the east, you know, the we three kings of Orient are, and we know that it was three what? Gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know how many wise men. There's good reason to believe that they had been even instructed by Daniel and, of course, the Old Testament. They saw the star in the sky. They had astronomical understanding plus the prophecy so I'm going to guess again the testimony of Daniel and maybe some of the other Jews and they saw the star and we could talk about the Shekinah glory they follow the star they get to Bethlehem or excuse me they come to Jerusalem looking for a king right where else would you look for a king well Jerusalem the palace Herod the Great Herod's a Nice, compassionate, loving man who was just so excited to see the wise men and wanted to go and worship the king with the wise men, right? No, not at all. Herod, immediately he was like, king? Now, king, now you can understand, Herod is basically a puppet under the hands of the Roman Empire. I mean, Herod, yeah, he's a pompous, arrogant, narcissistic individual. Well, he's under... The Roman emperor, who's really not much better. He just has more influence, more power, more authority. But Herod the Great is a builder. He's very uh, full of himself. And he's building things, even building up the temple, because he knew that would make the Jews like him more. But he, he was just a selfish individual. He hears about a king, and he pretends that he wants to know, so he can go and worship. And we know, of course from the account, that it's not about going to worship the Christ child, the King of kings and Lord of lords, born in the manger in Bethlehem. He wants to go to, to kill him. And who does he call about the kings, or excuse me, about the, the birth of this king? He calls the chief priests and the, the scribes. He calls the Jewish religious leaders. And where do they go? Where do they turn to? What do they bring up? Micah 5 and verse number 2. It's right there in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 6. 
They know that this verse is a reference to the coming Messiah and that he would be born in Bethlehem. They refer to this very verse. Now those chief priests and scribes have their own pride. They have their own willing ignorance. They have their own view of what this king should be. At this point, who has already heard the announcement of the birth of Jesus? Shepherds. Those dirty, filled wanderers. Those rednecks, right? That's the attitude of the religious leaders, the elite class, the aristocratic class. That's their attitude toward the shepherds. God has already declared to the shepherds, yes, there are wise men, educated, wealthy, sure. God saves both, but many times it's not the noble. It's not the mighty. Because they're too full themselves, too dependent on their wealth, their riches, their education, their intellect. The shepherds have come, they've worshipped, now the wise men come to worship. They talk to Herod, the chief priests and the scribes say, oh yeah, Micah 5 and verse 2, but they have a different idea of what their king should be, sadly. They don't want a king that they can submit to, that they should submit to, that will call them out for their sin and call them to repentance, who uses a prophet out of the wilderness, who wears camel clothes and eats locusts to prophesy and preach of the Messiah who will come from Bethlehem and is a Nazarene, not a Nazarite, but a Nazarene, come out of Galilee. So that leads us to John 7, where there's conflict among the people. They recognize Jesus as the one, capital O, one. The prophet, capital P, prophet. Other Messianic prophecies, going back to Deuteronomy, that even Moses refers to as the prophet. People in John 7, as they are debating who this Jesus is, they even refer to this prophecy in Micah 5. And they know that the birthplace of Jesus is Bethlehem, but he grew, grew up in Nazareth. And again, this is all part of this mindset that Bethlehem is this little place, insignificant place. We often think of the big cities. And I, I, I follow sports, and so I get, I get to see some of this play out in the professional sport world. And, you know, poor old Indiana. We, we, we can't keep a superstar for very long, it seems like, because they want to go to Hollywood. They want to go to the Big Apple. They want to go to where there's a big media market. So their big ego that already can't fit through the stadium doors can get even bigger, right? So they can get an even bigger contract, and they can get more shoe contracts, and on and on it goes. So when Indiana has a Reggie Miller who actually stays and actually loves and embraces Indiana, we like go crazy, right? Because here's a guy that actually will take time to love the great state of Indiana. I was watching a documentary on Barry Sanders, and one of the things that they said about him, I, 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 really, I really liked Barry Sanders as a running back. I, I thought he was one of the... For a professional football player, he was a pretty humble guy. I mean, the guy scores a touchdown, he hands the ball to the referee. Who does that anymore? I mean, what kind of a... I mean, even back then, he was mocked for 
Who goes to the referee and hands him a football after he scores a touchdown? You got to do all kinds of dances and you got to take your social media pics and you got to go and take the cell phone from a cameraman. And anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, all right. So Bethlehem, little town, not even referenced in Joshua 25 or Numbers 11. And sometimes we get caught up in this in our world. I want to be in the big city. I want to be from wherever. I remember being on a mission trip to New York City, and we were told if you want to start a conversation with a New Yorker, brag on their city. It was so true. I remember sitting in a subway, and I was sitting next to a guy, and I started bragging on New York City. It was my first time in New York City. I'm from Indianapolis. Our buildings are like that compared to yours. All of a sudden, he just lit up like a Christmas tree. You know, we started talking about the city, and I was kind of bragging on the city, and next thing you know, the Lord opened up a door, and I was able to spend about 20 minutes on that subway sharing the gospel with him. We were on Staten Island Ferry, same thing. We started bragging about New York City, and, oh, we just went by the Statue of Liberty, and look at the World Trade Centers, and all this stuff, and all of a sudden, this lady, she was like, yeah, let me tell you, <laughs> she started, so we had an opportunity to witness to her. It was so, it was so true. I mean, there's something about the pride of a big city, a famous location, right? Bethlehem. What was it known for being the city of David? What happened to David when it came time to choose a king and Samuel was told to anoint the king? Who did he go to? He went to the family of Jesse, one of those thousand, thousands of Judah, whether we're talking about villages or families, clans. It's the idea of a seemingly insignificant family. Okay, so Jesse, he has all his sons. And they go one by one, and what happens? He gets to the last one, and even dad says what about David? Oh, there's, oh yeah, um, by the way, I have another son, but he's just one of those, he's one of those redneck shepherd boys. I don't know what happened to him. I raised him, but you know. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate that when parents act like that? Towards, I mean, I'm not trying to get too harsh on, on Jesse, but don't you hate it when parents get that way with their kids? I mean, all four of our kids are different in their own way. And there are certain things as a dad that I just, you know, I, I tend to be a little bit more this way with one of my kids because I have an easier time relating than another kid who I don't relate with as well. And the Holy Spirit has to hit me upside the head with a two-by-four and say, wait a second here. God gave you all four of your children, and you may not be able to relate quite the same way with this one, but you still are called to relate to them and reach them and to disciple them and to give them the truth. And, I mean, it, it takes work, doesn't it? You've got to get to know your child. You gotta, I mean, I've had to swallow my pride. Kelly's had to give me one of those big elbow jabs. And uh, sometimes I see my own faults and my own kids, and then that's really rebuking, Right. Jesse says, wait a minute here, I got this redneck boy, he's a shepherd, but surely you don't want him to be the king. I mean, come on, he was born in Bethlehem, and he was a shepherd. You know, I wanted him to be big, broad-shouldered, and fighting the army. And, he just, huh. and what does God say? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. David was a man after God's own heart. David was out there singing praises to the Lord, working hard as a shepherd, Killing lions and bears with his hands. I mean, this is not a wimpy kid. And we got some tough guys in this room and in this church, but I don't know if any of us have taken on a, a lion or a bear with our bare hands. 
I mean, some of you have been out here doing this kind of thing with a, a gun, getting a 12-point a, a buck or something, a nice, nice deer. But he, he took on a lion and a bear with his bare hands. But he's an insignificant little shepherd boy. But Bethlehem is known as what? The city of David. So we have all of this going on, this insignificance of Bethlehem. It means house of bread. It was a grain-growing region. Again, one of the things that, again, I, I can't help but relate to some of this with Indiana. Sorry for all the sports illustrations this morning. But when the Pacers were playing the Knicks back in the 90s, and Larry Bird was playing for Indiana State, the hick from French Lick, and, and then the, the Pacers are going up to New York City to play the Knicks in the playoffs in the 90s. And I'm in college, I'm a big sports fan, and I'm going, you know, the Pacers. Pacers are actually decent this year, but they've lost a couple in a row now. To the Washington Wizards, who only had three wins, and they lost to them. But, you know, we were, we were, we were being mocked by New York City. Oh, these little hayseeds going up. That's the attitude that was kind of towards Bethlehem. Grain growing, bunch of farm boys, you know, that kind of attitude. You know what we're talking about, right? We see that kind of thumb your nose, look down on. We, we experience that in our culture today. There was some of that going on. Bethlehem, grain growing region, uh, a land of, of uh, olive orchards, vineyards, five to six miles south of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem overshadowed Bethlehem. It might have been a little, little suburb. I think of on the west side, or excuse me, the east side of Indianapolis going out, I-74, where Kelly's uh, grandparents lived for a while, a little town of Acton. Uh, there's an exit and a little cemetery there where Kelly's mom and grandparents are, are buried. But just a little further down the road is a little town called Fairland, where Kelly's aunt and uncle uh, live. Is it, is it Fairland? Yeah. Little towns like that, they, they, they just kind of get caught up in the shadow of Indianapolis, right? Now, it used to be that her little town where she grew up, Fortville, used to be, when we first got married 23 and a half years ago, it was a one-stop light town. And the trains went faster than the cars, I think, through town. But now it's got like three or four stoplights. They're building neighborhoods because the east side, people are leaving the city proper and they're coming out to Geist and Fishers and now even the little town of Ingalls where Kelly's sister and brother-in-law live even that little town somehow got an annex to be out by I-69 and so there's an exit to Ingalls I mean what happened to Fortville Fortville's closer to I-69 but somehow it got annexed for Ingalls that area now is getting developed and becoming kind of a, a suburb for Fishers or something but Geist and all that is coming out. Bethlehem has kind of been under the shadow of Jerusalem. But thou Bethlehem, Ephratol, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be, what? Ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Ephrata again, referring to the town of Bethlehem as distinct from the Bethlehem of Galilee. Ephrata meaning fruitful. The historical ancient name of Bethlehem referenced in Genesis and in Ruth. And then again the 
connection uh, with David, city of David, which then points to David as the king in the Davidic covenant and the fact that there will be a ruler on the throne from the line of David forever. And of course, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who will be on the throne and being of the house and lineage of David, both by Joseph and by Mary, Christ. Now, of course, we know Joseph, not the blood relative, because, of course, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so he would be his stepfather in that sense. But nevertheless, the royal line through Joseph and through Mary, and then, of course, being born of a virgin, but on the throne of David forever, for eternity, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The reference to Bethlehem, city of David, even speaks of the Davidic covenant and the royal line of David and the eternal throne of David in the person of Jesus Christ. So then we continue, and we understand, as I've gotten a little ahead of myself and don't have all the notes up on the slide, let's continue in understanding some more of these terms. What about ruler? What about ruler? Of course, it refers to a king. The chief priests, the scribes, they understood this. When the wise men came and the chief priests and the scribes were called forth and they referenced Micah 5 and verse 2, they understood this word ruler to be a king. The wise men were looking for a king. So ruler. So we see Christ is identified here, the Messiah is identified here as king. Not out of Jerusalem, but out of Bethlehem. Out of the tribe of Judah, out of the family of David, or the line of David. And we know that Christ is king, but his first coming, was it as a political ruler? Did Jesus grow up to be a politician and campaign and run around giving stump speeches? Did he come to try to overthrow the Roman Empire? Did he come and lead some sort of insurrection or mutiny against Herod and Pilate and eventually the Roman Empire? Did he do that? But there were some who wanted that, right? You can even talk about the zealots. And one of Jesus' apostles, one of his disciples, was a zealot. So there were a mixed band of people that Jesus called to be his disciples. There were some who wanted. Did not Judas get frustrated to the point that he rejected the very Son of God who had called him to be an apostle, a disciple, yet he was a full-fledged hypocrite? Did not Judas get frustrated with Jesus? Because what did Judas want? He was the accountant, right? Not saying anything against accountants, okay? But he was the bean counter. He thought, hmm, I'm going to get rich. This Jesus, with all his power, all his authority, he can come in, he can wipe out the Roman authority, and I'm going to be collecting the money, doing the account. And Judas had some fuzzy math going on, didn't he? Have you heard of the term girl math? Have you heard that lately? Yeah, girl math. Um, I'm not even sure I can completely explain it, but I'm not a girl, so I shouldn't have to, right? I, I see some laughter over here. Some of you know what I'm talking about, all right? Mansplain. <laughs> Mansplain. <laughs> I don't even completely understand how girl math works, but I, uh, you know, 
what is Judas? Judas has his fuzzy math. What was he doing? He's taken from the money bag. He was doing a Sam Bankman Freed, an Enron, these other scandals and you know, redoing the checkbook. Oh, I'm sorry, he was doing a, a Biden. Sorry, but he was doing a Biden, starting his own shell companies and funneling money. Do we not have human nature still revealing itself, the sin nature? I can only imagine Judas dropping Jesus' name. Can I say that with, without being irreverent, disrespectful? I mean, what do, we, what do we see with our president and his son? Name dropping, shell companies, collecting cash, having really no job, not even registered as a federal agent, or whatever they call it. Um, was Judas, Judas was, you, you can't help but think, Judas was using his association with Jesus to get himself some perks, so to speak, as a full-fledged hypocrite, okay? So we have all, we have all this that we're, that we're considering, but Jesus didn't come as a political leader. He didn't come as a military conqueror. He didn't come to, to lead an army. He didn't work his way up through the ranks of the military so that he could lead a conquest of the Romans or some other nation. We're in a dispensation now where Jesus, yes, is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is incarnate God, but he knew that he had a mission of redemption. He came to do the will of his Father. He said, my meat is to do, my very food is to do the will of my Father. And what was that going to be? Die on the cross for you and for me. To fulfill God's redemption plan. To rise again. To make atonement for the sins of mankind. To redeem us unto himself. To die for us as sinners. To become sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We only love him because he first loved us. We see... Goings forth. Now this gets into the deity of Christ. This gets into the eternality of Christ. Goings forth. It's interesting. The common commentators, some of the Bible scholars, they, uh, they, they debate back and forth a little bit. So if you go into some of the, uh, the other translations, you might see some different ways in which this is translated. Some of that comes from the understanding of the Hebrew language. And again, as we talked about in our series way back at the beginning of the year, in our series on the Bible, translators have to do some amount of interpretation. So as they're going through this Hebrew, they're having to do some sort of interpretation. Okay, And I'm not here to get into to all that again, but the, the point is you'll see different, you'll see alternative translations but the point is, this goings forth, it literally means to go forth. The translation philosophy should be as, to be as literal as possible in the keeping of uh, the, the grammar and the syntax in order to properly translate without reading too much in by the translators, of course, okay? But the King James translators chose goings forth because it means to go forth, it might even be translated to conduct one's activities. But this particular phrase in the Hebrew was often used in a military connotation. 
Now let's think about this. Christ was king when he was born, right? The word ruler, king, is used. Notice that the phrase goings forth has a military connotation. It has the idea of the departure of an army going forth for battle. This would be the gathering of the army and then them being shipped out. Some of you have family members. And isn't there some sort of ceremony when a a group is is shipped out? Um, Some of you have been to those kinds of ceremonies. And there's the recognition of the battalion or the platoon or uh, whatever the group title is, and then they are, they're shipped out. That's the idea of goings forth. So there's this king who has military conquest. Does Jesus come in his first coming as a military conqueror, political ruler? No. So there's a dual reference here. Born in Bethlehem with a forecast, a predictive prophecy to what? To what? The second coming, the millennial kingdom, the battle of Armageddon, the final battle at the end of the millennial kingdom. At the same time, there is in the Old Testament times where God uses foreign nations to conquer his people or for his people to conquer wicked and vile nations in the land of Canaan. We are going to see Christ as king And yet we understand in the proper dispensational view of the Bible that there are times where God is not going to lead his people in the church age for us to go forward to start some sort of military conquest. For us to go and begin slaying, killing certain groups of people. That's not the dispensation. It's not the way in which God wants us as a church in this age of grace and this dispensation to act. There was a time where God told his people to do that in the land of Canaan. Yes, Kelly. Exactly. So we're not conquering physically with weapons of carnality, of flesh and blood. We are in a spiritual battle. You're exactly right. So we see that tension Even in this verse, we are in a spiritual battle. And how do we conquer? Do we conquer like Hamas? Do we conquer like Hezbollah? Do we conquer like Iran, North Korea, Putin? How do we conquer? Prayer. Armor of God. The spiritual weapons. Obedience, faithfulness, holy living, evangelizing, our testimony. Can I use the analogy of, of Jerry, Brother Jerry? Was he not a conqueror in a spiritual sense? Sure he was. Look at the testimony, look at the legacy, look at the influence for Christ. The heart of evangelism and giving tracts and reaching out to neighbors and sharing the gospel and the number of people they had through their home. We have the word of God, the sword of the spirit, praying always, pray without ceasing. So we see that tension. We're not called in this dispensation to go and to take up our arms and to literally go into a physical battle. Now, we have Second Amendment rights. We have times where there's literal armies that have to go and fight against evil. And we're losing our understanding of evil and right and wrong, aren't we, even among our politicians, our government, sadly. There is a place for that. Romans 13, 
But we feel this tension, don't we? We are in the Lord's army, but it's a spiritual battle. Is it not clear in Scripture that Christ is king? Look at the references. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The Lord is king forever and ever. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. There is a royal, kingly, even military aspect to God's sovereign rule, to the Messiah's rule. There will be a literal, physical kingdom on earth where Christ will rule the rod of iron. There will be the eternal kingdom. But you're exactly right. Again, our primary warfare is spiritual. We defend our homes. We have a military that goes forward into battle at times for various reasons to hopefully protect us and to put down evil. But ultimately, we look to the King of Kings, and we trust Him, and we depend upon Him, and we fight the battles spiritually. So we'll have to just rush through these final points here. But we see that this reference, I I went too far, sorry about that. We see this reference to of old, I should have put it on the next slide. It has to do with ancient times, it has to do though with Literally everlasting. Days of immeasurable time. Everlasting. Eternal. Looking back. Looking forward. Whose goings forth have been from old, what? Even from everlasting. Of time immeasurable. Speaking to the eternality of this Messiah who is God, who is Christ. So, Getting into some of the historical context then, we are from Matthew, or Micah, excuse me, chapter 5. Let's go all the way ahead to Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter number 2. We're coming down to the last little bit of time that we have here. And it came to pass in those days that went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called what? Bethlehem, because he's of the house and lineage of whom? David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So, now we're in the New Testament. Christ is born. A little bit of historical context. Caesar Augustus is now the emperor. The first emperor of the Roman Empire. The Roman Republic has collapsed. This Caesar Augustus is also known as Caius Octavius. He became emperor in 29 B.C., given the title Augustus two years later in 26 B.C. And that title Augustus means exalted one. What's the beginning stages of imperial cultic worship? There's a religious flavor now to the emperor being God. Emperor worship. He was a conqueror. He extended the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, and there's this census. 
when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. The census was probably, from what we understand in historical context, gathering names, determining population, first of all for military service, and then of course, as all governments do, not just for military service and to count the number of people, but to do what? To tax. Government knows no end to taxes. So, this census, though, they can go back in historical record, archaeology, and determine, just as the Bible speaks in historical context, the Bible is not a history book, but it is historical, and it is accurate, completely accurate, in every historical account and detail. And again, I repeat it all the time, but archaeology, as they find things, it always verifies what the Bible already says is true. And as they have done historical records and archaeology, though it can be difficult to determine the exact date of this census, it nevertheless is in historical records that Cyrenius was governor twice, and there was a census at this time that was God's part of God's plan for bringing Joseph and Mary from Nazareth down to Bethlehem so that fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus would be born in the manger in Bethlehem. Joseph had to return to his ancestral home of his tribal origin. And while Caesar Augustus was going about his business, thinking he was increasing his authority, his wealth, his military might, his influence, all of his power and authority, yet the plan of God far superseded and overruled anything that Caesar Augustus thought he was doing. He thought, oh, I'm the big man on the planet, right? And God's looking down in the heathen rage, and God laughs. God's going about his redemption plan, and Caesar is thinking he's big stuff. Our current administration, and talk about Putin and Kim Jong-un and all these other people, they think they're big stuff. And God's saying, the heathen may rage, but God shall have them in derision. He's going about his redemption plan, and the true king, the king of kings, would be born in Bethlehem in perfect fulfillment of prophecy. Once again, we, I don't think I have the arrow, but from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, 80 miles, having to go up 3,500 feet to Jerusalem, then back down some elevation to Bethlehem, all in fulfillment of God's perfect redemption plan as Joseph and Mary obeyed God we're reminded that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way may we be the good men the good women who delight in the Lord as Psalm 37 earlier in that chapter as we delight in the Lord and fulfill the desires that God places on our heart let him direct our steps as he did Joseph and Mary, and see God's will fulfilled in our lives for for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, the fulfillment of this prophecy, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, born in a manger, born in little Bethlehem, but born as king, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again, to ascend up to the right hand of the throne of God, who one day come again, and rule and reign on this earth and for eternity. Thank you for these promises, this fulfillment that then looks forward to a future where you will once again fulfill your promises completely and fully. 
Thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. Someone deserving, are we? But we thank you for your grace and mercy that allows us to be just a small part of your redemption plan and your sovereign rule and providence. And we thank you for it. Pray you bless the service to follow here. And thank you again for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we will uh, meet back in about 15 minutes. I believe the children's